scripture for today's sermon comes from Exodus 2, 23 through 25. The word of God speaks to us. During those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Katie. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. I thought it was fitting. I thought it would be fitting to, uh, by the way, my, my name is Dave. If you happen to be a guest and I haven't uh, had the pleasure of meeting you, but uh, um, I, I like my love language is gifts, particularly giving gifts is super fun. And so I thought it would just be fitting. I know this is the second Sunday of Advent, but it is the first Sunday of December. So I thought we could begin by just like giving some gifts away, which is, uh, seems right and good. And so, and, and to do that, um, I, you know, if you have a birthday that happens to be close to Christmas, I know historically that has maybe not been fun for you, which doesn't seem right. I think if you like share a birthday or even have a birthday in proximity to the birthday of the Savior of the world, that should be like a benefit, right? And so this morning it will be. Um, I want to do some giveaways for you. And so I just so happen to know that my man Seth is born December 26th. And so can anybody... Beat. Is anybody born, let's say, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Anyone? Christmas Eve. Wow. All right. Christmas Eve. Okay, so this is the deal. I've been giving giveaways long enough to know I came prepared. I got double gifts. All right. And so do you guys mind coming up here and then we, we all sing happy birthday? No, I'm just joking. But could, if you cut, Seth, I know you can run up here. You run for fun. So literally come up here. And uh, let's say for you, Seth, I'm going to give thoughts for young men, an exhortation directed to those in the prime of their life by one of my heroes, J.C. Ryle. And let's do this. We'll do this too. We'll do The Case for Christmas by Lee Strobel. So happy birthday, man. Are you going to be 15? You're going to be 16. 16. So happy 16th birthday, man. Love you. And then sis, do you have gentle and lowly? Okay, this is, I mean, Gentle and Lowly. Look, you got gasps. That's how good that book is. So it's an amazing book by Dane Ortland. So, hey, happy birthday. All right, let me, let me pray for y'all. You pray for me. We're in it together. And then we're going to continue in uh, our Advent series. So, Father, we thank you for this moment. We pray that you would help us be present. There's so many things, as Stacey even led us in prayer, so many things that... Uh, can distract us and and rob our presence in this season. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, you would help us really sit, really be still, and really have our ears, hearts open to all that you would have for us this morning. And help me help my friends as we hold up the beauty of peace in Christ. Jesus, we pray this in your name. God's people said, amen. Well, when, when Christmas shows up, words come along with the season, right? Obvious words like tree, lights, gifts, um, sentimental words like chestnuts, which I'm not sure I've ever had, and, you know, um, Grinch, right, and elves on shelves and all that super fun stuff. Um, really rich and beautiful words that are part of the true narrative of Christmas. Shepherds and angels, mangers. But as we, as a church, and, and Christians around the world really lean into the season of Advent, which is a season historically marked by longing. That's what Advent means, longing and arrival. That 
we use words to help us in that journey, to help our hearts, not just in like solidarity, to pretend like we're longing for a Savior to come, like the believers of old, but we, we still long, looking at a, a God who's always kept his promises and has promised to come again. And so we, we long for the second coming of Jesus. And to help us in our longing and to help us prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas, we have these words that are, that are here as, as truths to focus on. And last week, as Pastor JJ really began with Eden and we looked at Advent, we looked at the longing of hope. And still to come, we're going to look at joy and love. But today, as has been said already, we're going to look at the beauty of what peace means. What's the promise of peace in Christmas? What's the, the longing of peace that we all carry? And I know if you're like me, Maybe 11 months out of the year when you think about peace, you don't think about Christmas. That's not the first thing that comes to mind. Literally, if we're going to like, you know, dictionary it, um, we're going to see that in our language, most of the time, peace means just merely the absence of conflict. In all honesty, when I think of peace, the first thing I think of 11 months out of the year is hippies. Um, which, you know, is, is great. But even hippies, right? Well, why are they marked by an association with peace? It's because part of being a hippie in the 60s or 70s was to, um, for the most part, stand for the end of a conflict, which was the Vietnam War. Maybe in, in modern terms, we think of peace in the Middle East, like an idea that dominates politics and, and headlines so often. But when I think of peace in December, which... I often do in December, and I do think of, of peace in relation to Christmas. As many of you know, you've heard me say before, I, I think of this moment that happened in history, which happened during World War I on Christmas Eve, and his, history calls it the truce of 1914. And the story quickly goes like this. This is a, a war that was supposed to be the war to end all wars. It was a war that was raging, and it was horrible in its violence, trench warfare, was invented, really, during World War I. And so uh, along the Western Front, you had English troops fighting German troops, and it was just chaos continually and devastation and terror. Yet Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1914, something happened. A survivor named Alfred Anderson, he describes it this way, one of the veterans of the war. He said, I remember the silence, the eerie sound of silence, only the guards were on duty, and we all went outside the farming buildings and just stood listening. All I heard for two months in the trenches was hissing, cracking, and whining of bullets in flight, machine guns fired, and distant German voices. But there was dead silence that morning, right across the land as far as you could see. And we... We shouted Merry Christmas, even though nobody felt very merry. And then what happens is the German troops, they begin to tentatively crawl out of their trenches into no man's land, and they cried out in English, Merry Christmas, Englishmen. And this really miracle happened where these men who moments earlier were trying to kill each other, they begin celebrating Christmas together in a moment of peace. And they exchanged pipe tobacco and, and chocolate. Just so happens to be the things that dominate my Christmas list this year. 
they started to, I think we have some pictures to actually show what this looked like, but they actually started to, to cut one another's hair. <laughs> you know, the war zone had been transformed into a men's barber shop where they're chopping it up and, and joking with one another. They decorated Christmas trees with candles that were still left standing that hadn't been cut down by machine gun fire. They even played soccer together in a friendly game. But eventually the sun went down, and as Christmas Day came to an end, so did that peace. Again, Alfred Anderson goes on to say this. The silence ended early, and the killing started again. It was a short peace in a terrible war. Now, I always think of this story about this time of year, particularly this week of Advent, where we focus on peace. And I, and I always think of it because I think it's infi- insightful in some ways to our experience, even for our Christmas, although that might seem so different than what our Christmas day will look like. Let me, let me explain as to why it resonates with me. I think my Christmas can feel like the Christmas truce of 1914, and I suspect your Christmas can feel like the 1914 truce because in the midst of it and when it's over, it can feel like it was just short-lived, a quick reprieve from what feels like a chaos that envelops us and an ongoing conflict that's a part of our life or, or we carry even in our own heart. So I think about my own Christmas morning, right? And we're going to open stockings and we're going to exchange gifts and we're going to have good food and and maybe even sing songs and try to, I'm going to as a dad, try to capture and take hold of myself and for my family like this Christmas celebration. And we feel like there's something there that's worth holding on to, a feeling that we're, we're trying to capture. And yet, I think when we think of peace, when I think of peace, I, I don't think of just the absence of conflict, but I think of like a state of my soul, right? This internal, deep calm, a rightness in my innermost being. And I think if we could name what we want to have at Christmas, that's it. Every gift, every song, every good meal in some way, we're trying to chase after this, this deep state of rightness that we want to know, we want people we love to know. And yet, the truth is in this season, and maybe we're already there, is that although we're fighting for this feeling, that there seems to be something that's lurking. It can be as obvious as an empty chair at the dinner table. Maybe a broken relationship or somebody that we've lost, that we long to be there with us, that we're grieving. It could be the reality that we ourselves are struggling with addiction and that that struggle doesn't end December 25th just because it's the day that we celebrate Jesus' birthday. Or we could be walking along with somebody who has that struggle too and that's, that's real. Maybe it can be the worry and the stress of financial hardship and mounting debt. Grief, pain, a struggle with anxiety, depression, a fight, because we constantly feel shame. This can be a reality in some way for all of us and for a lot of us in a really deep and heavy way. 
And I think we're going to be tempted to, to work hard to try to make Christmas some ceasefire from all of that. And yet, when the paper is all over the floor and the gifts are all open and things slow down a little bit, can it feel like the shots are fired again and we're back in that conflict and chaos? And yet, all the while, why peace is prevalent as a message this month is because the clear message of Christmas is that peace is offered. That the message of Christmas is is that Jesus came to bring peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And yet, some of us in this room might be tempted to look around the world around the season and say, well, how does that peace play out? Because I see a lot of conflict. Or just even settle down with our own hearts and feel where we're at and think, I'm longing to know a peace, and yet I feel pain. There's a scholar, this agnostic. He's a, a critic of the Christian faith. His name's Bert, uh, Bart Ehrman. And um, at one of his uh, events, he draws hundreds of people to come hear him speak, and he often has a Q&A, and at one of those Q&As, somebody asked, hey, what would it take for you to, to believe in Jesus? And his answer was this, if Jesus had fulfilled his promise to bring, to bring peace on earth. So is he on to something? Is is the peace on earth that we hear is, is really offered in Jesus at, at Christmas specifically, but it's foundational to the very truth of the Christian faith. Is that just actually part of the pretend nat- nature of Christmas? Is that just fantasy? Is that all just grouped in with the elves on the shelf, right? Or is that actually a message of real power and substance? Is it fact? Is that something that can actually change a life? Well, I think to begin to answer that question, we just need to look at the Bible's definition of peace. See, in Scripture, peace can mean the absence of conflict, but it has like a a richer, deeper meaning than just that. It's not just the absence of a conflict, but it's the presence of something in its stead, the presence of, of something purposeful. The word for peace in the Old Testament is shalom. In the New Testament, it's irene in the Greek, or uh, irene. And it simply means this. Peace means complete or, or whole. And it doesn't just apply to a person or a soul. It can like apply to objects being complete or whole. Like Joshua 8, God charges people to build an altar of, of stones that are stones of peace meaning that they're, they're not cracked, they're whole, they're, they're solid. There's a theologian named Tim Mackey. He's, he's kind of the mind behind the Bible project that so many of us find helpful. But he refers to the idea of peace as in the Old Testament, so often um, just describing in the Word of God like a, a solid wall with Each brick perfectly fit in its place, together, united in purpose, a sound structure, right? So if you just imagine just like a a solid, big, formidable wall protecting a city, and you amaze at its engineering and, and construction, you look at that and you say, that's something that's well built, that Scripture would say, actually, that wall possesses shalom, it possesses peace, it's whole, it's solid, it's complete. 
And if something were to come and wreck it and break it down, or even one piece would be missing, then it it would lose its shalom, its peace, and need restoration and repair. Pastor, author Tim Keller, he defines peace this way in his book, Generous Justice. He says, shalom means complete reconciliation, a state of fullest of flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. So when we long for peace, that's what we're longing for, a complete restoration, a fullness of our flourishing. When I think about a people longing for peace, a people that have experienced a wreckage, but who are longing for that restoration, for longing for a completeness and a wholeness in Scripture, the, the first story that comes to mind is the story of the Exodus. And to really understand all the Old Testament, it, it's, it's necessary to, to have an understanding of, of the Exodus. And to understand the epic story of the Exodus, it really starts with understanding or beginning with one man. And that one man, his name was Abram and his stories in the book of Genesis, which proceeds, leads up to the story of Exodus in the Old Testament. And Abram was a guy that just worshipped the moon. But he was a guy who God in his grace and his sovereignty, God chose him, called him to, to follow the one true living God and revealed to him God's true nature. And God called him to, to follow in faith. Said, hey, come, even though Abram was an old man, he never had kids. God said, hey, follow me and I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to give you a family. And then he expanded those promises and said, I'm actually going to give you a land and your family's actually going to be built into a nation. And that nation, Abram, is going to, to actually be a light to the world. I'm going to use you to bring about a people that are going to reveal who I am and be a part of my rescue plan. And God was faithful. He transformed Abram, gave him a new identity, changed his name to Abraham. And Abraham did have a boy named Isaac. And that boy had a couple boys named Esau and Jacob. And, and Jacob had 12 boys. And they had a lot of drama. One of them's name was Joseph. And he was betrayed by his other 11 brothers. And they threw him down into a pit. They sold him into slavery. And yet God was in control and sovereign and, and faithful. And even though Joseph's life was marked by suffering and hardship, God took him from the depths of a pit as a boy. And by the end of his life, he had raised him up to be in charge of the most powerful nation on earth at the time, Egypt. God used him as a, as a means of rescue, gave him wisdom, allowed him to hear the voice of God where he helped prepare the nation of Egypt to get ready for a famine, not only just for Egypt's good, but for the whole region's good. And the very people that betrayed Joseph as, as a young boy, his brothers, they actually came back, were reunited with him and experienced the refuge and the peace of Egypt by finding food and shelter there. That family that had been promised to Abraham at that point had grown to about 70 people and the king of Egypt invited them to stay and live there to know a safe haven from the famine. But eventually Jacob died and 
His sons died, including Joseph, but the family continued to stay and grow and, and know peace and multiply. And they, they did so for about 400 years. And that's where the story of Exodus begins. Let me read for you Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities of Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And if that's not bad enough, we see how truly dark and horrible things get. Then Pharaoh commands all his people in, in verse 22, we read, Every son that is born of the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. So what once was a place of peace for these chosen people of God who were marked by his mercy and grace, Egypt is no longer a, a place of peace, but a deep nightmare of pain. And some of us may be familiar with the story, some of us not, but it's, it's easy to, to, to separate in a way where we don't actually empathize with the reality of the depth and the darkness of what's happening here, right? Just imagine you're a part of this people at this time. Your life is marked by backbreaking labor, long, difficult hours. There's no pay. There's, there's no upgrade in economic status. There's never enough to go around despite you working tirelessly. You live in a place of constant shame in society and worse upon worse. Pregnancy and the expectancy of bringing a child into this world which should be marked with joy is absolute heartbreak because you're living in terror that your child is a son and he's going to be taken, and his life is taken. Trauma is woven in and ingrained into the very fabric and constant reality of your life. And we see Scripture tells us that this reality went on for 400 years of oppression and nightmare and slavery. I mean, the United States has been a nation for 245, right? To put that in perspective, this is just generations with knowing nothing but oppression and abuse and slavery. So what once was peace, was solid, was whole and complete, God's intention for this people is now a heap of rubble, of pain and darkness. But it's in this darkness, as Katie read, that the light of God begins to shine. Exodus 2, verse 23 during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning 
God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He saw the people of Israel and he knew. That's a great Christmas verse. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people. God knew. Those are precious realities for people in pain that are longing for peace. God seeing, hearing, knowing, remembering. And so God acts. And he sends a a savior, a deliverer to these people who are oppressed. His name is Moses. And he sends Moses in power with a simple message to the powers that enslave these people. Four words from God, let my people go. And they're not listened to. And so God just flexes. And he brings judgment. And he, he does so in such a way that he mocks the false gods of Egypt. And eventually Pharaoh caves and releases the people of Israel, but immediately changes his mind. And upon their exodus, they're they're on the shores of the Red Sea, and he and all his forces are on the cusp of taking them back into slavery and bringing them back as slaves. And Moses reminds the people once again, you have done nothing to free yourselves. You will do nothing to rescue you in this moment. You just sit back and experience grace and mercy and watch God move in power. And God does. He, He makes a see a highway and they walk through it into freedom and those powers that are coming to oppress them once again, God closes those waters above them in judgment and wipes them away. God takes these people in in a season of wilderness and he provides for them. He gives them water. He gives them bread from heaven. He even gives them meat to eat. And then he takes them to receive laws, direction, that they help define them as God's people, what it means to live in communion with God. And he promises them a land that they're going to possess, a promised land that's marked by sweetness and sustenance, milk and honey. And yet as you continue to read this story of God redeeming and saving and rescuing his people, what continually marks these people is an insistence upon running away from God. It doesn't go well. They get out of Egypt, but Egypt doesn't get out of them. They carry in their hearts a slavery. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 8, 34. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is the reality for this people. It's a reality for us that our 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 circumstances can change. We can move to a new city. We can get that raise. We can get things that we long for, yet deep down we, we have this oppression of sin, a separation from God because we've run from him again and again. But in the midst of this continual running from God, all through the Old Testament, this people continually rebels and he continually in his mercy pursues. And in, in the midst of that pursuit, one prophet who speaks on behalf of God, he makes this sweet promise. And he says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the promise is the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's work. It's his gift of grace. You've run from God, chosen people, people that are meant to be a light to the world, to reflect God's goodness. And yet, Even though you're running, God's going to give you a gift of a king who will rule forever and he will bring peace. He's the embodiment of peace and he will bring you into a kingdom that is a kingdom of peace, completeness, wholeness as you were made to live. This is the message of Christmas. Once again, God heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. And there was a a great deliverance from slavery by a great deliverer, Moses. But what we see the prophet Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter 9 promising and the the reality and the power of Christmas is that it's a celebration of a greater deliverer who is delivering us from a greater slavery, that slavery of sin. And the the freedom that we're going to experience from this deliverer is going to come at such a great cost that it's going to be the very embodiment of love. Isaiah 53, again, how are we going to be delivered? How are we going to know this peace? It was prophesied of the Savior. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. So when we find ourselves talking about peace this month, when we're thinking about peace at Christmas, why when Jesus was born, the heavens were torn open and an army of angels had to bust out in song and sing about peace by saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or as we already sang today, echoing that, that beautiful hymn by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. Why? Because God and sinners have been reconciled. See, the the truth of Christmas, not the pretend part, the reality of Christmas, the, the power of Christmas is that it's a celebration of the truth of real deep peace that can only be brought about by Christ Jesus who was born for us as a gift, who lived a perfect life for us as a gift, who died for us willingly as a gift and rose for us so that we can rise again into newness of life and know the gift of true life, life of shalom, completeness, wholeness that's made possible in him completely and only in him. So where do we go from here? I want to end with a story that I I read this week about a a man that many of you might know. His name's Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He's a poet that lived in the late 1800s. And um, his Christmas experience one year, um, I think sheds light on on often what we experience this month. And this was his circumstances. Um, He lived in the North during the Civil War. And so he, on Christmas morning, 1863, woke up with expectation of wanting to celebrate Christmas, hopes, longings to feel peace. 
And yet what he felt primarily was grief because two years earlier, his wife, who he deeply loved, had passed away tragically in a fire. He actually bore the scars of that fire. And we all know when we grieve people we, we've lost, that it's hard all the time, but it's especially hard on holidays. So he woke up carrying in his heart just deep grief that his wife wasn't with him, and he wanted her to be with him. On top of that, his son, who had fought for the North in the Civil War, had, had been deeply wounded by a bullet, was sent home. And so he was experiencing that pain that's unique to the pain of a parent where you would so rather hurt than your child hurt, and yet his, his son was in a constant state of pain and he was caring for him. So not only was he grieving the loss of his wife that day in, in deep ways, but his constant reality was he was once again the caretaker of now an adult child who had been deeply and desperately wounded by a bullet of a Confederate soldier. And obviously, in 1863, for a man that loved his country, he was carrying the pain of, of I mean, we want to talk about like divisions in our country, like it never got worse than that. Brother fighting brother. And so he was carrying the pain of the country that he loved literally at war with one another. And so being the poet that he was, he sat down because his heart was full of lament and grief. And so he wanted to, to express that, the overflowing of that lament and grief he, he, he wanted to let pour out in a poem. And so he sat down at his desk on Christmas morning to grieve and lament. And yet what happened in that moment is that his local church down the road, the, the church bells began to ring. The Christmas carols began to ring from the church bells. And as he sat down in grief and lament, the ringing of those bells not only struck his ear, but by the power of the Spirit, they seemed to resound deep down in his heart. And so this is what Longfellow wrote. He said, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill towards men, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He's expressing the beauty of, hey, when the sun rose this Christmas morning, all around the world, every church, every home, celebrating the birth of Jesus. And yet then his, his heart turns to the reality of the war in the south, and he, he begins to describe the horror of a cannon he says, and then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south with the sound of carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And it was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Can't we all feel that way? Is peace on earth the promise of Christmas? Is it drowned out by the pain of circumstances in a country in our own life? 
And yet, look at the truth that strikes Longfellow's heart as he ends this poem. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. (laughs) God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill towards men. This is the substance of Christmas. This is the promise and the reality of peace on Christmas, that despite our feelings, there is a fact that God is alive. He doesn't sleep. Jesus is on his throne. And he's actively building his church. And what we look forward to, we celebrate the reality that that Christ has conquered sin and death and Satan and hell and we are free and we are no longer slaves to sin. We have peace with God. And what do we have to look forward to? Revelation 21 And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Sea in scripture is just a picture of chaos. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. God had prepared a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, dwell the place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. As we long for peace, we long in the confidence that we have real peace with God through Christ Jesus. If we've put our faith in him and he's our Lord and Savior, and we look forward to a day where all things will be made completely new, New heavens, new earth. We are with God. Shalom. Everything is made right again. We have a God who keeps his promises. And so we look forward to a day where peace is full in every sense of the word, complete and restored. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that you're a God who knows and remembers and sees and hears. You're a God who acts. You're a God who flexes on our behalf in might. And we can't do a thing to save ourselves, but you have done everything to save us. And you freed us from the slavery of sin. Christ Jesus, you are our great deliverer. You are the Prince of Peace who's brought restoration and completeness and wholeness and brought us back to God. And so even though Christmas might be hard for many of us in many different ways, my prayer for each of us this season is what rests on our heart and, and informs our feelings is the true fact and substance of the reality of peace we have in you this Christmas. And I pray that you would continue to grow us as a people of longing 
that not only celebrates what's true in you now by the power of the cross and resurrection, but the peace that is to come where every tear is wiped away. Disease is no more. War is no more. And the king is with his people forever. And we pray that you would hasten the day, Jesus. We pray this in your name. God's people said, amen.